I just wanted to say quickly, like, if you're on the brink of wanting to learn one of these languages, go do it. Like, it's really worth it. It's such a, an interesting world and it really opens your mind to more ideas. Welcome to episode 69 of ArrayCast. I'm your host, Connor. And today with us, we have our four panelists and a special guest who we will get to introducing in a moment. But first, we're going to go around and do brief introductions. We'll start with Bob, then go to Stephen, then go to Adam and finish with Marshall. I'm Bob Terrio, and I am a Jay enthusiast and season's greetings to everyone. I'm Stephen Taylor, an APL and Q enthusiast. I'm Adam Bosevsky. I do APL, but I'm interested in other array programming languages as well. I'm Marshall Lockbaum. Someday I'm going to make a language called Enthusiast and really just mess everyone up. <laughs> <laughs> and as mentioned before, uh, my name's Connor. I'm a polyglot programmer, research scientist, and massive fan of all the array languages, which is, makes me very excited every time we get to record one of these. But before we uh, get into introducing today's special guest, we've got a few announcements. I think we're going to go to Bob first, uh, then we'll go to Marshall, and then we'll finish with Adam. Well, my first announcement is actually a thank you to our two subscribers who, once again this year, this is our last podcast of the year, um, have gone through and, and worked diligently to provide transcri transcripts for all our podcasts. So thank you to Sanjay Cherian and Igor Kim. You guys do great work. Of course, an assist to Adam, who, who provides a, a time-stamped version of the transcript that needs to be cleaned up, and I guess me as well, because I often work on it, but I also have a whisper transcript that actually provides some amazing transcripts now. So uh, thanks to all those things. And my second announcement is I mentioned the J Viewer uh, last uh, episode, and there's been a lot of people take it on. It's really an amazing tool. It and and right now my announcement is I mean we'll put links in the in the show notes for people who want to look at it. It really is astounding. In fact, I guess there's a I've got a couple of uh, comments. The uh, people have favorite quotes of, of Ed's are Wow, the viewer's working now. It looks excellent. No sleep for me tonight. And still loving the J Viewer, more rabbit holes than Watership Down, for those of you who knew about Watership Down. Um, and the other, I guess the final part of that announcement is, Ed is looking to uh, take transcriptions of videos of J and actually include those in the searches of the J Viewer, which is very cool. And uh, that means that there'll be searches if you have a term or something, you, you'll actually see videos pop up or links to videos that might pop up. So uh, if you have a video that you've done in J, uh, you can send it to contact at arraycast.com and I will make sure it gets to Ed and then we'll grab it and transcribe it and put it as, as a link or put it as a, a place to search in the viewer. So that's actually, this thing is just growing out and encapsulating the entire world. So it's, it's amazing. It's really cool. That's my announcements. Awesome. All the links will be in the show notes as per usual. And with that, we'll go over to Marshall. What I have is this existed, uh, actually, the last podcast we recorded, but now it's even better. So it's better that I announce it now. What we have in BQN is a new BQN editor that is called BQN Editor. It's made by a user called FunMaker. And it's, um, it's a lot like the one on my website, but it's also better. Um, and it's influenced by WeWa as well. So it's a little more... Um, like that in some ways. It's got syntax highlighting as you type. Um, that's really hard to do in HTML, so I just didn't bother with it. And another really cool feature it has is if you want to type a BQN character and you're looking at where it is on, in the key map, what you have to do for mine is you have to click it probably, or I guess you can hover and see how to type it. In the BQN editor, what you do is you look at the character and then you type backslash, and then all under all the characters, it shows what you have to type after the backslash. So then you just type what shows up. And that's a really cool, you know, way of entering these special characters that I haven't seen before. Um, I think it works really well. And so, yeah, this is a, if you like to uh, write your BQN in, a, in an HTML page, this is something to check out. Wow. This is fantastic, folks. We're going we're gonna to interrupt the announcements. We've basically got an editor war within the BQN community. We've got BQN pad. 
Now, what what do we actually call this? You're just calling it the BQN editor. You got to have a. We, That's I asked what. Um, so it's on the page on running BQN, and I asked, "What do you call it?" And this person said BQN editor. So mm. that's what it's called. All right. Of course, I mean, mine is I just call it the BQN REPL, the, the web REPL or something like that. I will. I'm going to spend some time. Stay tuned, listener. At the end of this episode, I, host of Arraycast, will <laughs> give this a better name than the BQN editor. But this is, uh, this is super cool. We've got multiple editors competing with each other. And uh, yeah, this, the, the backslash is very neat. I mean, and, and I love the fact that because we, we discussed this when we had uh, Kai Schmidt. Uh, I, actually, maybe it wasn't that episode or maybe it was the one after it, after I'd played around with it a bit more where you type things in and then it, it auto-completes on the prefix. And uh, my, my remark was that was like it's a novel way and it does remove like a small barrier to entry. And I think this is kind of the same thing now. Like as long as you know backslash is your, you know, uh, combination key, now you actually can just like very quickly look. And uh, that is super helpful because I know like 50% of them, but every once in a while there's some less well-used one. Anyways, back to the announcements. This is great. Uh, link will be in the show notes and we were, we're going to have to have some editor off at some point because the J, J playground, we've got try IPL, uh, we've got multiple BQN ones now. Uh, I'm sure we was going to respond, uh, very quickly with another editor so that they've got multiple competing ones, but their actual one is so good. That's the issue. I mean, you know, if you make something good, then other people don't try to improve it. Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, we'll we'll see. I'm sure Kai's listening right now, and he's already making plans. Uh, their 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 Discord is probably figuring out what their next step is. Uh, all right, back to the announcements. Link will be in the show notes. Over to Adam. Okay, so two things for me. Uh, one is that the last missing videos from the Dialogue Twenty Three user meeting are now available for your viewing pleasure on YouTube and on Dialogue.tv. And then in this uh, gift-giving season of ours, and why not treat yourself or somebody else to some uh, APL or other array programming merch? I suggest you go to apl.wiki/merch and choose something really nice from there. And at least the things that I've set up selling for, I don't make anything of those, nothing at all. So don't worry about that. It is purely for your service, dear listener. Um, and I can offer you things like uh, merch saying that you're setting Quad.io to zero or to one or to both <laughs> and many other interesting gifts. Adam has failed to mention that we were in like a five minute argument about indexing and Quad.io before this recording started. And then we said, oh, we got to do a whole episode at some point in the future on indexing. And that's what led us to think about uh, the Quad.io merch. So check it out if you haven't. Links to everything we've mentioned are going to be in the show notes. And that finally brings us to the introduction of our guest today. We've mentioned him multiple times on the past few episodes. He definitely came up on the previous one with Brian. Our guest today, probably you know by the title of this episode, is David Zvister. I'm not sure how close he can correct my pronunciation uh, in a second. But David, as we have mentioned before, is probably most well-known in the Array community for having a YouTube channel. I think the handle is davidsvister156, but if you search his name, you will find it. But don't do any of that stuff. Just go to the show notes. It'll probably be the number one link at the top, seeing as that this, this is the point of today's episode. And like we've mentioned before, I, I think we mentioned the snake video. So David has been making short videos, some of them longer, basically implementing small games using the uh, RAID BQN library that we talked about in the previous episode on episode 68. But it's not just the snake one. He has videos on tic-tac-toe. I think a multiple multiples. Uh, he also has one, I believe, a little bit further back a couple months ago that was on the Asteroids game. Anyways, we're going to talk about all the different games that he's implemented, his thoughts and feelings on what you know makes BQN and array languages so great for this kind of thing. But before we do that, I will throw it over to David. He can cor uh, correct my pronunciation and maybe give a, a brief introduction. We started doing this with Brian when Brian mentioned that he was from the Faroe Islands. Maybe if you want, tell us where you're from and uh, yeah, uh, a brief background on sort of how you got to you know programming in array languages today and then we'll go from there. Well, hi. Um, so I'm David. In Dutch, you'd say David Switzer. So uh, not Switzer, but Switzer. <laughs> and um, yeah, so I'm making these videos in uh, BQN. 
so a bit about my background, maybe. I actually studied game development uh, when I was 15. I did that for four years uh, and then actually moved on to art school because I felt like game development was too still restricted for me. And there I uh, did new media arts and I actually became an artist. But games are always in my heart, like programming games. Uh, maybe I should talk about how I got into BQN or... Uh, well, so I already have questions lined up. You've only, you know, been chatting for a sec, but I've already got a couple. So 15, you went to game programming school. Uh, when I was 15, I was in high school. So how how does that calculus work out? Did you drop out of high school to go to some, you know, game programming institution or, or yeah, how does that work? Yeah, that's a bit of the Dutch school system. Uh, I was quite a young student or an early starter. And um, if you do um, what do you call a more practical stream, then your, your high school is quite short. Uh, and then you can choose a more applied school. So I went to game development quite young then. Uh, and that's how I got there. Uh, and that's also where I first learned to program as well. It's the first interaction with that. Yeah. Holy smokes. So is this a is this a common thing in Europe or is this specific to to Holland that you can graduate high school if you choose like a specialized path and then you have sort of a an, an option of like where you go from there? I'm not sure actually, but I, I just know the system that we use. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, very cool. So at 15, basically, you you graduate high school and go to specifically a, a, a school or institution for game programming and then you do that for four years and that's where you started to learn how to program is that is that where you also discovered bqn and array languages or was that uh, that was later i don't think it was four years ago <laughs> oh yeah that's a good point that's a good point <laughs> no uh so after that i did four years of art school and now i'm actually a freelance artist uh i do interactive installations if you know those terms. So I create art installations and tell stories, or I try to find frictions and interesting things and pour them into interactions and installations. That's like the main thing I'm doing. That is so cool. Is this, I have only seen, I haven't seen all of your YouTube videos because I know your channel dates back uh, from before you know, when I first discovered the first video that I watched, which was either the snake or the asteroids one. Mm. Uh, do you have like videos that are showing any of these installations or art installations or like, do, do is there some page we can link the listeners if they're interested in uh, seeing some of your work? Mm, yeah, I have an Instagram account where I upload experiments I'm doing. So um, I'm also doing just programming experiments and visual experiments. And I also have a portfolio um, called davidsitzer at gmail or no, I mean, dot uh, com, davidsitzer.com. Um, and there you can see some artworks. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That is super cool. Um, and also, I was thinking my when the my one of my first thoughts when you said artist, I was like, oh, what? I wonder what his thoughts are on uh, you know the LLM, you know, situation right now because there's lots of you know people with thoughts. But if you're doing interactive art installations, yours is like the safest art <laughs> of all because currently they're just doing you know uh, image generation and, and text generation. Mm. As far as I know, the AIs are not uh, building actual interactive art installations it, that I know of at the moment. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, but it's like, I'm kind of in my own niche. Uh, there is of course other arts, uh, interactive art, but I'm trying to explore the things I find interesting. So you're always in like a new area. And I think I'm quite safe from AI in that sense, because yes, I'm exploring the, the, the own like philosophical trial of things I'm interested in. David, what, what's the difference between a game and interactive art? Like, I mean, it seems to me there's a bit of a crossover between, is it just you're, in a game you've got a goal? Is that the difference or what do you think? Yeah, there's definitely, uh, there's definitely overlap. A game is usually, for making a game, there's quite some set ideas, like uh, there's a menu, which like not every game has it, of course, but there's like a mentality where you need to have a start menu and a game over and some rules, of course. And in interactive installation, you're totally free. Like you can, uh, one artwork I did was literally a machine with a button and if you press and hold the button, then there is a loading bar popping up and it'll start loading as long as you hold it down. And there's a sound that gets louder and louder and louder, uh, but it'll never end. And that's the whole point. Like you're there with the sound come, becoming very annoying and very harsh, but you're still holding the button because you want some reward. And it's like so, so in some way an anti-game, like you're trying to <laughs> play into those intuitions we have built up. Uh, and trying to poke that a little bit. Where was this? Uh, where was this uh, art installation set up? Was it just like the corner of a street, like <laughs> irritating the passerbyers, or like? 
Yeah, it was actually next to the toilets in uh, the exposition I did for my graduation. So if, I, I hope that when people wanted to go to the toilet, but they saw this machine with this blinking <laughs> button, they started pressing it and then they got stuck yeah. <laughs> because they wanted to have some result. Yeah. And they couldn't let go. <laughs> yeah, because we're programmed to. Yeah. Wow. That is amazing. And how does it does? Uh, I'm assuming if it never ends, does that mean you just like decelerate the rate at which the progress bar is completing so that it just will never it never finishes or does it just like freeze? Like what is it? What is the user experiencing? They're like, why is it slowing down? You know, <laughs> this should have been done 10 seconds ago. Uh, but nobody would notice that all progress bars are like that. Every piece of software. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a very simple piece of code. It's just, you calculate the distance from where you are to the end and then you divide it by some number. So you never get to the end. It's like the infinite slice. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Asymptotically going on forever. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so you go to you go to game programming school, then you go to art school, and then what happened after that? So it's, it's it's and you're you're you know a freelance artist now. At some point, somewhere, I guess there was a big BQN convention that we don't know about, and uh, <laughs> you were had a display there, and uh, that's where you discovered it. Uh, how did that come across your radar? Well, to explain how I got into BQN or array programming, there's a bit of a, like it was one of my research tracks I did during being a freelance artist because I give myself this space to go on these explorations. And um, the motivation dates back to when I first started learning programming because I was 15 and uh, learning to program really helped me shape the way I think and look at the world. Because when you're building systems, you're sort of creating like around you are also lots of systems and things interacting. And with programming, you describe them and mechanize them. Uh, and I really like that aspect of programming. Uh, so uh, for me, it was always about sort of expressiveness. And the beautiful thing is when you write it down, then you can look at it, you can iterate on it. And uh, so I took this programming with me through art school when it became like my main thing. Uh, but I always, like the first languages I learned were ActionScript, C-sharp and JavaScript, uh, Unity C-sharp. And those, uh, like mentioned here before, have lots of ceremony and lots of uh, like arbitrary restrictions, I feel like. And those weren't part of these ideas I wanted to express. Those were like mandatory things you needed to do before you could get something running. Uh, so I was always interested in getting rid of that and looking into other languages. Um, I found the functional languages like Haskell and I used Elm a lot. Uh, but then I saw your video, Connor, uh, or the code report. <laughs> and those were amazing because they laid out these languages step by step. Uh, and it was sort of a gradual step towards expressiveness. And that's what I programmed for. Um, so at the end of this, this range was were these array languages, these weird character esoteric language for me back then. Uh, and it seemed like this holy grail of expressiveness. Um, <laughs> and when I saw it, I, I was totally convinced, but I walked around it for a bit because they are very scary looking. Um, but eventually uh, this summer I knew like, I just have to learn them because yeah, this is what I want to program for. And I bit the bullets and I, chose BQN and I went through all the documentation and it was very hard. It took a lot of time because like I was, my mind was programmed a bit functionally, but mostly um, imperative or what's the name, like the, the general languages. Procedural maybe. Procedural. Yeah. Yeah. Procedural imperative. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, but I got through it slowly and I was slowly starting to be able to write. And of course, what I wrote were games because that's what I was used to. And that's my comfort zone. Uh, so the first thing I wrote was uh, rock, paper, scissors. That was quite easy. Um, then I went on to tic-tac-toe, which took a long time because <laughs> there were lots of things I needed to know. And then I found Raylib because like this graphical library, I like my language in programming is visual and interactive. Uh, so it was, it was perfect. And Brian made the, the library so that I like, it doesn't, didn't really have any barrier. I could just use it and it was quite intuitive. And I started doing some visual experiments and yeah, that's where, where it grew. That is awesome. I mean, I feel like I'm hogging all the questions here, so please feel free to interrupt uh, <laughs> other panelists. But, you know, you said that you, you, you saw BQN uh, code at the end of one of these videos, but didn't immediately, like you appreciated how beautiful and expressive it was, but you didn't immediately go and, you know, start learning them. And then you finally, this past summer, took time aside. But it sounds like it wasn't like super, you didn't like instantly, because some, some of the stories we hear, like people find the language and they instantly fall in love and it just you know, it's, it's easy breezy, but it sounds like for you, there was a little bit of like a learning curve. Like, so what tell us, I'm, I'm curious to hear more about like 
what it what what the experience of learning this like kind of being um looking at the language as something daunting but then finally like approaching it and tackling it because i'm sure there's other folks out there like most folks will see it and be like oh this is really cool but then not ever finally take the step to go and learn it so um, i'm curious yeah to hear more about like what that was like for you yeah um i think i I don't really have a very formal programming background and also not a math background so i think that's why like I, i looked at haskell for a long time as well and i tried to learn it but it was very hard for me uh, so it was more like um, having giving myself the time uh, and um, and the motivation to do it. So this summer I had time, and then learning it, yeah, there are just a lot of concepts which are very new. You need to start to speak this other language which you're not used to. But also along this way, there are like lots of small victories which are very rewarding. So I was yeah, it was very enjoyable to learn as well. And for a long time, I was just reading documentation and the people around me, because I, I have a studio with other artists uh, and I couldn't explain to them why I was doing it. Like, this is such an abstract idea. And um, I didn't even know what I would use it for. Um, but I was just in this, like, I, I, I intuitively knew I needed to learn it uh, and just going through step by step by step. Uh, and eventually, even how, how, how foreign it looks, um you'll get there and you'll start to understand them and start to speak it and yeah it becomes easier and easier essentially and is the ups and downs of you know trials and tribulations of working through a a new concept that's very odd but then mastering that you said there's a bunch of small wins is is it worth it at the end of like are are you missing the days of c sharp and unity and uh, i think action script you said was one of the other ones in javascript like are there things you miss or is it like this is, you know, the Garden of Eden and there's no other way you ever want to program again? I mean, and there's not a correct or wrong answer to this question, David. I'm just. <laughs> yeah. Well, the biggest thing I'm noticing is if I use another language, I'm very annoyed easily. <laughs> so that's like a downside, I guess. But the upside is like I'm doing now with uh, trying to figure out structures to write games in. It's it's very fun to, to have this freedom with this language to um write things the way you think they are and um just have so much possibilities of of notation uh yeah and i I think it gives a lot of freedom if you want to program for yeah if you want to experiment and and go through new grounds and yeah yeah i was going to mention one of the most recent videos that you did is actually sort of outlines the structure you got for providing sort of a framework for building games Mm. which i thought was really cool because you kind of met meta on it and I can see where other people might be able to come in, look at that video, look at that structure. And then from there, just change the components about what's working within. Because the overall, well, as I said, you're, you're an interactive artist. You understand that process. So you know exactly how to order things, I think, to be most efficient. Is, is, is that why you produced that video? Uh, yeah, I think that's what I enjoy most about programming is, like I said, having these structures in your head and iterating on it. So you write them down and you can see what can be even better. Um, and yeah, I think that structure, it can be even neater because there's just so much flexibility. Uh, and yeah, from that, you can build other systems. So yeah, I I just really enjoy doing stuff like that. I, I know from the video, you said a number of times, it's so verbose. But when I was looking at it, I thought... Yeah, you know, we all talk about trying to make everything so terse, but I think in this case, verbosity is really what you want because you want some flexibility from the person who's using it. If you made it too terse, you'd have to be really discerning about how you compressed it because otherwise, you know, it's like a series of black boxes and it would be hard to work with. But what you put out doesn't look so much like an array language, but I can see the purpose of doing it that way. Mm, Yeah, because with game programming, you're trying to describe this virtual world with objects and interaction uh, and then you get a lot of names um, and also these these examples didn't use a lot of logic and that's what the symbols are used a lot for so yeah i looking back at it yeah it wasn't that verbose actually <laughs> i was just i was working on it for so long and i wanted to push it out before this podcast this episode and i was just a bit through it <laughs> but now that i look back at it i yeah it's not that verbose yeah well that's something i always remark in my head silently when I'm talking to myself by myself at a computer <laughs> when I look at Marshall's code it's that you know all the YouTube videos that I make just show these one-line expressions right that's all you ever see and like you know probably number seven top most popular comments that I get is like how when are you going to do something like actually substantive that's not like a one-liner which is 
it's good feedback, you know, uh, but it's a lot easier to make a, you know, 24 programming languages, one problem when it's a single line <laughs> in each language versus like, you know, actually doing something that's involved. But when you look at Marshall's code or, or actual, like, you know, programming some kind of application, like I remember looking at the the markdown parser, I think that you wrote Marshall yeah. and a lot of it, it's, it doesn't look anything like that kind of just like glyph, 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 glyph. It's a bunch of glyphs. But then the other 50% or 75% of the code are named functions that you've, you've written and like utilities that you built up. And even when I went and tracked down for the advent of code, uh, the str, you know, two nats function, like that whole file, like a lot of glyphs, but also like a lot of names. And I think that is like the, it's maybe jarring to go from looking at just like, oh, one liner, one liner, one liner, one liner, like you do the dialogue APL contest, only like part, you know, the section one or whatever, where they're all one liners. But then if you look at the the second part, it's a lot of named things, right? Because you, you can't just, I mean, I if you look at, I guess, uh, Aaron Shue's code, yeah. you know, his kind of does look like that. <laughs> it's just the one liner blown up into a whole screen. But for the most part, it looks more close to actually like, you know, Python or Java code where it's just everything is either from a library or stuff that you wrote, right? Yeah, well, the, the Aaron Sue comparison is uh, is interesting because the this is very relevant to the Markdown parser. So the Markdown parser was my first kind of effort in BQN to be deliberately verbose. So I was I was really trying to make it, you know, expanded out, well explained. I didn't like fully comment everything, but I tried to like there are some parts that I didn't really finish, is how I'd say it. But I tried to, you know, fully explain how things are doing, you know, and show that you can write BQN in this style that's more expanded. That was, you know, immediately following my work on the BQN compiler, where I was trying to test out, do, do Aaron's ideas really work? So I copied his style for the compiler. And uh, yeah, in a way, yes. The interesting thing is that after I did the compiler, I've just left it. I've fixed bugs and you know extended things as necessary but left the style in place and aaron's rewritten his compiler to be in a more verbose style so interesting jerry's still out on you know i guess what i'd say is that you don't have to pick any particular style that's pretty clear to me now so the markdown parser was doing the same semantically the same sort of code as the compiler but in a very different presentation and i think you know basically it's a you're thinking about the same things. I mean, it's just a matter of how you write it. And it's um, it becomes different in how you approach the code when you don't know what it's doing. But if you do know what it's doing, you're really not even thinking about, you know, what's right. what's actually on the page anyway. You're thinking about, you know, what are all these arrays and where are they moving? What are the properties? Yeah, I've I've always there's there's multiple different styles. And I, I think the markdown parser is very readable, but I also have found that the defunds code um, that ships with uh, Dialog APL. It, I think, I'm not sure if John Scholes wrote most of that, but yeah. like they have these, you know, small functions with very sm- short local variable names, and then the lamp comment with like a short comment after each line. So it's usually, you know, like you're looking at a five to ten line function, but like every variable name is like max, you know, one to three letters long. But like there'll be a comment you know, 30 characters to the left or 20 characters to the left, explaining it if you need to know what S stands for or whatever. But a lot of the times, like very quickly, having those short variable names enables you to keep the code so tight and so small. And it's, anyways, so it's just to echo that, yeah, there's there's more than one way, one style. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people will prefer, prefer different ones. Uh. Well, I think actually a really interesting direction is that you can mix them together. So um, a lot of the Singeli compiler looks like this maybe, um, where, you know, the the really technical stuff that's you know just shuffling a lot of parts around and spe- implementing something specific like i have a topological sort that i just put on one line cuz nobody really cares how you do a topological sort cuz what you want is that the result is um comes out topologically sorted and that's much easier to understand than how you did it so array programming is nice cuz it lets you you know pile all these details into this place where and, and it's not unreadable, right? It's a style that many people, you know, intentionally use, but this very compact style. So if you want to know the details, you can read it as an array program. But if you want to know, you know, the high level picture and be, you know, working with the big ideas and saying, you know, what what's this program really doing? You can look at, you can zoom out and look at the high level picture, kind of just gloss over all the implementation stuff and look at all these long names and descriptions and figure out, you know, what what's really happening. Yeah. That makes it makes me wonder, David, because you mentioned like you mentioned that when you went to the game programming school, I think that 
it was ActionScript, yeah, C Sharp and Unity and then JavaScript. Do you still program in those languages? And if so, has having all this experience in BQN and array languages like affected the way that you program uh, in those languages? Um, well, I use Python uh, in another program. I use Dutch Designer, uh, which is a visual programming, which uses um, programming language, which uses Python. And I use L, um, uh, Lua for other stuff, but not necessarily these other languages anymore. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, mostly I want to do things in an array way. And it is possible in Python, for example. Um, and yeah, you, you do get different uh, ideas or uh, directions to think in when you learn an array language. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely influences the way you program, or for me at least, yeah. Yeah, I, I, it definitely resonates. The, the main thing is, is that I'm irritated when using other languages, and it's not that irritated because I can't do something. It's irritated, irritating that I can't express something as quickly. You know, I'll, I'll have to pull in some more iter tools library to make use of some chunk function or something like that, which in BQN is just going to be literally like the combination of two or three primitives, and. Uh, and then, like once he said, you're back to having all this ceremony, which it's it's n Python is amazing. You can always get it, things done in Python. It's just it's going to be more verbose and um, and yeah. So does that mean? So you said the there's it's a, a designing program that you that you use or that you're that you've written in Python or that uses Python as a part of it. Uh, um, it uses Python as a part of it. It's called Touch Designer, and I really recommend looking into it. Uh, it's a, a node-based programming language, um, but it's not that they use nodes to represent like classes or anything. They really try to um, think of nodes as, as like a practical, as in the nodes actually have value. You can see 3D objects in them or pixels or channel data. And it is very handy for making installations because it is very good at talking to um, hardware and linking things together. And inside of this, you can write Python. And I would really love to make uh, a, a way to write BQN in it. <laughs> um, but I'm not sure if that's going to be possible. Interesting. I mean, that's there's a lot of those. Isn't Excel? I know that, um, is it Chris Pearson? He has a program. I want to say it's called Mesh, but this is from like a couple of years ago. So I could have that wrong. But he was designing a kind of Excel-like thing where instead of the functions you had, um, uh, Q or an array language as like your quote unquote formula languages. There are many times where, yeah, I'm in some kind of thing and they've got some formula l language or whatever. <laughs> like Excel is the best example because it's so painful, <laughs> the stuff you're doing. And it's always inside out because it uses, you know, parentheses for function calls. And at the end of the day, you're doing something that is literally like one or two characters in any array language. And the monstrosity of a thing that you end up with in Excel, it's, yeah, it's very sad. Um, Anyway, so Dutch designer, we will put that in the show notes, Bob. Well, I was you were talking about Excel being and and uh, Eric Iverson when he created JD. That's one of the things he talks about. The JD is it's not an Excel; it's a database, but but you can use J within it. So all those cells, all the things you do, you're writing J, which makes it quite flexible and, and quite easy to work around. And and if you're a J uh, programmer, it, it's just feels quite natural. So you do get a real buildup of the kind of power of that uh, experience. And one of the things I was going to say about the terseness of the language is when it does work for you, where I find it really works for me, is the fact that you don't have that ceremony. So if you want to change something, you can change something quite radically if an idea isn't working out and change it in a whole new direction very quickly. So to me, that's where the real use of the terseness comes in. But of course, once you've actually created something like that, if you want it to be reusable or, or other people to work with it, you do have to put comments in. And at the extreme end of this, uh, Dissect, which was Henry Rich's, uh, inter well, not interactive, but basically a viewer of uh, operations in J. So it's really useful for people who are beginning in J because it breaks it down and shows you a whole tree of what it's doing. Uh, that particular program, I think, is over 10,000 lines. Now, a lot of them are, are comments, but still, and it, it's, it's actually, if you're into programming, it's worth reading it because it's just amazing the way he's documented it. You can have these huge programs because that is the purpose of them. And I think at some point, you know, Henry will probably end up, you know, or I've often referred to people, if you want to learn about coding something like that, it's a good thing to read almost like a novel because it's closer to literate programming where you're explaining what you're doing as you're going through it. 
there's no way, <laughs> I can't even imagine 10,000 one-liners together doing, I don't know what they would do. Maybe that's AI. Maybe that's what AI would produce. That's a scary thought. Uh, I mean, I don't think the AIs, the LLMs have mastered the array languages yet. Uh, they're not bad at explaining, um, but when you ask them to write stuff. It's very funny to use Copilot with BQN because then you get the random APL in between and <laughs> <laughs> lots of suggestions that don't make sense. And sometimes it does make sense, but yeah. Interesting. So are, do you have uh, do you actively use Copilot just whenever you're programming in any language? In Python, definitely. Um, yeah, I think uh, it makes sense to use uh, because oftentimes what I feel like is Copilot fills in those things that array languages always already take away. So all the ceremony and verbosity, it fills that in for you. And you just uh, sort of approximate what you try to, to do and then it'll generate this outer structure, sort of, I feel like. Interesting. Have you uh, experimented with ChatGPT? Because I actually have not, to, to date, used Copilot. I don't mind the... I like having a conversation where I, I describe what I want, then it just gives me a whole Python script, and then I modify. And I know that the Copilot one, it's, you know, you put a comment or the start of a function name, and then it just... It says, I'll take it from here, and then, and then puts a bunch of stuff. And uh, I've heard from some folks that it kind of feels like, like it interrupts your flow because uh, it's kind of like, no, that's not what I wanted. And then you got to, so like, what, yeah, t tell me what your experience with Copilot has been and uh, if, if you've contrasted that with just talking with a chat GPT system. Yeah, you got to learn to ignore uh, bad suggestions, of course, because it's going to suggest a lot of things you don't mean. Uh, and I've not used it that much because I've been programming BQN as well. Um, but you can sort of ask it questions in your code. And uh, oftentimes, I, I, for example, in Lua, I work in a system which is very verbose and it has lots of like template stuff. And it, it can read this template in other parts and then just fill it in for you or like, give you the structure. And for those kinds of things, it really makes sense to me. Um, because yeah, I'm otherwise just typing things which are not that hard. It's just a lot of labor, essentially. Copy, copy pasting, copy pasta. Mm -hmm. uh... Yeah, they they say that a certain percentage of coding is not actually like coding something from scratch. <laughs> it's, you go and find some similar thing, copy and paste it, and then change the pieces you need, right? Yeah, well, the beautiful thing about like BQN or the array languages is that you really, um, I think, it's more personal, um, I think, because, yeah, you can, of course, have these standard functions which do certain operations. Uh, but for me, at least, like, there are lots of explorations into areas which there's, not, of course, not that much dialogue as for with, with Python, for example. I mean, online uh, forum posts. So there's just, I don't know, it's a very personal, subjective exploration of ideas, I, I feel like, in these array languages more than other languages. Yeah, one of the nice things you get is that, um, I mean, a lot of people, this is also a problem in that a lot of people have, you know, they see a primitive and they say, yeah, I understand what it does, but like, what is it doing? Like, what does it mean? And one of the really nice things is that, you know, a primitive can mean so many things. So it's sort of up to you to, well, or maybe up to the documentation to enlighten you about them, <laughs> but also up to you to, you know, find out what are you going to use the primitive for in this application? You know, what? what's a new use of this functionality? Yeah, because I feel like the APL languages are... Uh, a sort of this like distillation of all the noise and they got to the core of like logic <laughs> in a sense not like in their own way of course but i feel like there is some sort of truth if you write a, a very beautiful piece of code there is some sort of deep truth to it and that's actually also a thing i want to do with these languages i have i want to do an, an installation or more of a yeah, artwork of pieces of beautiful pieces of code and then show that to people that don't really know how to code because the annoying thing about programming uh, languages or the beauty in it is that you need to be able to read it. But my idea is that uh, I'll create a program which uh, visualizes what's happening. And I think array languages are very good for this because they're about shapes and you can represent them in 3D, like transforming data shapes and um, so uh, my idea is that I have this line of code, uh, which you give some data, maybe you even input it through actual physical dials or buttons, and then you can see it going through the code. You can see the different parts uh, interacting with it and then see the actual data being transformed. And I think that 
can give uh, people who don't know how to code some intuition about like the beauty that's in there and the sort of truth. And these pieces of code can be like functions which create these beautiful graphical things, but also maybe even pieces of code that describe uh, structures in our normal world. Like, the, for example, my project with this uh, ramp going up and infinitely getting slower. These very simple structures they dictate a lot of what uh, how we operate and how things in our outside world works like addiction or uh, yeah so like finding pieces of code that represent these systems we all know but then you see them in code you see the the interaction happening but they still affect you uh, in that like truthful way like, that, that's an idea i'm having i want to really want to do with uh, the languages the big one i'm learning that sounds super cool like i'm picturing like uh i know uh jay has a trace function but i think there are several different you know language features or tra tracing capabilities in the different array languages but like if you have the trace of some you know random 10 integers and then you're you know filtering just in the odds and then summing those up or something like you can if you had some little dial that like increases what's the starting number of random integers and then as you do that like you have some interactive display somehow that like shows that like even if you don't completely understand what's going on there like you'd You'd understand that, oh, I turn the dial up, it increases the number of random numbers, and then I can kind of follow the trace. And at the end of the day, I see the number get bigger. I'm sure your version of this interactive would be much more. I'm just picturing like a computer screen that like <laughs> you have a little dial and then it's like, oh, the number gets bigger, the number gets smaller, and then the, chase, the, the trace changes. But that still is like a super cool idea because, you know, what kind of other languages so... Easily would that be able, because like in a language like Python, everything's so verbose and it's kind of hard to pick apart because you don't build up these composition of functions linearly most of the time. It's like, you know, a method on a string or a built-in function or a collection from some random library. Whereas in PQN and APL, a lot of the times it's just like a stack almost. You're just popping an operation off, evaluating it. And yeah, that is super, super cool. We'll, we'll definitely have to make sure to put your a link to both your profile, your portfolio and your Instagram so that whenever this materializes at some years, years in the future or months in the future, um, people will be able to, to, to see it and be sure to let us know when, <laughs> when it happens because we will let the listeners know in our announcement section of a future episode. Um, Adam? Yeah, did you see the, the presentations by John Daintree about the talking by token debugging? That is, that's something that's coming one day in the future to dial like APL, hopefully sooner rather than later. And with the normal tracer goes line by line, excuse that, but he's working on, he has demonstrated the prototype of the system where you trace basically primitive by primitive, and then you can inspect the right and left arguments and the result of the primitive as you trace along. And you can even have some history of what was the previous thing that was evaluated. I think that'll be a tremendous tool for people learning and trying to understand how is this working but even to understand some fancy algorithm that somebody has just put together a one-liner if it was um i, I think it will be a, a big thing though to be fair we're working on this at dialogue and our competitor epl plus has had this since i was a little boy um maybe before i don't know i did not know that is an apl plus I'm trying to recall now from the uh the Middlebrook Conference. That's the uh, what's the parent company? Because they're they're the ones that it's not uh, open source, right? Our our listeners can't go and play around with it. Yeah, yeah. Apple Plus is like the most well hidden thing that you have to pay a fortune for to even try it out. Um, but that's that's a descendant of uh, well IBM's API three hundred and sixty, and then uh, Scientific Timeshare Corporation and IP Sharp Associates working together on some extensions to that, which is called an APL Plus, and then they fill out with each other and it's split up into Sharp APL and APL Plus as its own standalone thing. And then Ipsa went away and APL Plus continued and changed hands a couple of times and uh, or at least name and uh, still called APL Plus Win. Right, yeah. And there's technically two companies. There's APL Next and APL Now. APL Now. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, yeah. And one of them was one of them was a parent company for the sort of acquired technologies and the separate parent company was or I'm not sure if parent company is the correct term, was for the 
the, the future technologies. Anyways, it's all very com- confusing. We will find an APL wiki link, put it in the show notes, and we'll also find a link to the website that when I was at Minnowbrook, I was watching a uh, presentation where this was being talked about. And the first thing I did was I was like, I had no idea that there was like a whole other world of APLs. And uh, then I went to the website ready to like download it and play around. And it was like, bop, bop, like enter your username. And I was like, well, I don't have one of those. Uh, <laughs> what is the, what is this non-accessible uh, array language? Um, which, yeah, probably is why it's, it's less well known. Uh, and I think they were even saying that in the States, it's actually like got a bigger market share oh, yeah. than Dialogue APL. And I was like, how is there this like bigger market share APL that like I've never even heard of? Yeah. And, uh, and then they were just saying, oh, well, Dialogue just does a lot more sort of like uh, evangelism and whatnot. So, that, you know, people know about them more. And I was like, OK, well, that seems completely fair. But still, <laughs> I would have liked to know that there was this other company that existed. Yeah, I mentioned um, them on location. It's written about them on APL wiki but uh yeah it, it dialect makes noise and dialect makes extensions to the language but definitely still i think the commercially the small player compared to ibm's apl which is now changed hands apl2 and apl plus yeah uh, we might i think i mean we still haven't uh had these guests on but we've got all the guests from KXCon and all the guests from minnowbrook we were supposed to i mean speaking of artists stanley jordan we mentioned right when i got back from that uh seems like an amazing next guest although i think we've got like a month and a half uh of guests booked out but at some point we're gonna get all these folks on uh david i think you were you were gonna say jump in there uh yeah sort of a different direction so if you want to finish or if you still have to say something no no different different direction this is a tangent that we can we can close up here (laughs) yeah i was going to hook into this idea of the like a rarity maybe of array languages because always if i look at I, I try to look a lot on youtube for videos about programming languages and array languages don't come up very often like very minimally and that's definitely why i also wanted to make youtube videos uh, to spread some awareness and to also hopefully inspire other people to start making videos because like my first video i just filmed myself programming uh, what i was already doing and uh, it doesn't have to be anything fancy it's just very nice like i really enjoy just looking at people doing things i enjoy or i'm interested in if you like you have, they have podcasts where they talk about different array paradigms but then array languages don't come up and it's very sad <laughs> uh, yeah, so I would really love if there is more awareness. I'm also there. There is a creative coding community in the Netherlands, and I'm hoping to do uh, a workshop there under the name of uh, learning a weird language, <laughs> um, because people do find it like interesting and inspiring to see these weird characters. It it's really triggering, of course, aesthetically. It's like an alien language. Um, it's always the first thing I show if I talk about I'm learning BQN and I'm just showing these characters to them and they're like, whoa. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> yeah, so I really try to spread it and to, to make it into a bigger thing, but it, it is hard, yeah. I, I think it's really important when you have different communities of creative people and Computer programmers or, or developers are definitely very creative people, but they're their own group. And often there's not as much crossover with communities like art communities, which I think just hearing you talk about your perspective on art and how it affects. And when you're talking about installation, you went a different direction, I think, than most computer programmers would do, is you weren't looking to actually explain what's going on. We all jumped into this, well, you could take a, a function and it would show what was going on. But actually, what I heard you saying more, and I might be misinterpreting, but was more about letting somebody who doesn't know what's going on see that there's an operation going on. So it's not the details you were going to show them as much, but to show the process that's happening and that there is a process. And quite often, I think when we work so much so much with machines and we have this structural way of looking at things, we think, well, everybody knows that. But the fact is they don't. Mm. And, when you, and then that's often what art does is it challenges you to think in new ways. And if you don't usually think in that way, it suddenly opens that up and you think, oh, you mean this works like this? And something that you type in your you know ID number to get your bank machine suddenly becomes oh this is happening behind the scenes and it changes your whole perspective on the world because if you really talk about empowerment if you realize that's how these things are built you realize they can be changed and so the oh the computer does it that way becomes a very limited excuse it's not the computer it's the system that the computer's running under that does it that way 
So I, I, I think when you get this wider view of different groups looking at the same challenges in the same positions and the same um, possibilities, I think that that becomes really exciting. So I think you should get more artists involved because I think just that new perspective and, and you know, across all groups, you know, musicians, Connor was mentioning Stanley Jordan, who's an amazing jazz guitarist that exploration changes the way you use these tools. So often we get locked into our, our thinking about these tools and developing these tools, but the outside influence of other people changes how you can develop the tools. Mm, yeah, definitely. And I think the, the perspective uh, arts can give you more is that thinking about this in a very intuitive way, as in there's, of course, a lot of intuition for uh, like programmers as well. Um, but programming is a lot about intuition, about how things are moving and structured. Um, that's what I want to give with that idea as well. Uh, making people feel that, like using their intuitions they have about movement and structures to uh, to give them a feel of what programming is instead of a logical step-by-step explanation. Because you have like the, this theory of the two sides of the brain um, almost being separate and one is very rational, one is very intuitive. Uh, and there's a very, uh, like the intuitive part is very strong and you can have a lot of knowledge, uh, which you can't explicitly explain or define, but you can really get a good feel or direction towards something. And using this intuitive part as well uh, for explaining code or giving or like explaining structures is really powerful, I think. I'm just very excited because what you were saying earlier about, you know, the part of the reason you started the YouTube channel was to try and inspire other folks that like you know you don't need to have this crazy production value or anything it's just putting out what you're working on hopefully you know someone else will do the same thing um i really i really feel like the array language community is uh like there's like a shift happening that i don't see like in other similar communities like the small talk or like object oriented community i think they're also like a bit smaller and they also have like pharaoh which is a you know, newer IDE kind of thing, but they don't like, I I would love there to be a, also like a, you know, I don't know what you would call it, object oriented cast or, you know, small talk cast. Um, but like, I love these like little niche communities and like Haskell's doing well, but like Haskell's always been based in academia. And so they always have like a new set of graduate students or whatever, whereas array languages and APL have kind of lived outside the world of academia, except for you know, very rare instances of folks like uh, um, Aaron Chu, who we mentioned earlier, you know, he did his dissertation on code funds. But it's it's very rare that, you know, people are actually doing, you know, dissertations and PhDs and graduate work in the world of array languages. And uh, just over the last two years, like basically since we've started this podcast, you know, like we're starting to see people that we had no idea about, like uh, you, David and Brian. And uh, I don't know, I'm excited to see like in five or 10 years, like, my hope is that like the ecosystem that Python has, like the array languages will be growing closer and closer to that because uh, I think that's like the the number one thing that's like preventing more people from picking, picking up array languages because it's like, ah, you know, Python just has so much momentum and they have a library for everything. But like there's so many tools that I write, like my little mapping tools for generating runs so I can go collect street nodes. Like I would love to do that <laughs> in BQN or APL or something like that. But there's no like, Plotly, Matplotlylib, or whatever library I use. And honestly, I don't even know what library I use because I just go ask ChatGPT and then it just builds me the script and like I need to insert like one or two lines of logic and it's done. But if like an array language can get to a point where the LLMs know what it's doing, I can write that that one or two, you know, lines of logic becomes like three characters. And uh, like who wouldn't want to do that? Uh, we're just, I don't think array languages are at that point. I, I could be wrong. Maybe Jay does have like a Matplotly you know, hook into, you know, those uh, ge ge geographical uh, Python libraries. Yeah, we haven't really explored that yet. I, th I think there is an opportunity with that, but more the fact that an LLM is working on patterns seems to be to be a natural thing to start. I mean, the same way you take a natural language and you say, okay, well, there's a pattern here, and then suddenly the thing can produce information that makes sense. It's all based on this huge volume of corpora of pattern. You'd think that, that uh, an array language would be a natural thing. The, um, the number of symbols is much more strongly defined, what they do, and, and the uh, length of any particular text is much shorter. So 
I wouldn't think it would be as much of a challenge as natural language is. But then again, if it hallucinates, I'm not sure what it looks like when it hallucinates in J. <laughs> well, I think the length for the current models might be sort of a problem because it seems like they get, you know, a fixed amount of thinking per token done. So, you know, with Python, they can get, get a bunch of tokens in or um, Java might be even better. Who knows? They can get a bunch of tokens in just like starting the definition of the function and all. And... Um, by by having so many you know things to write they're able to spend more total time thinking about you know what what am i programming whereas with an array language it would have to jump right in and have an idea of what it's doing on the first token which is just not not enough like there there's not enough numbers going through the matrices and all to to get um to get a high level picture of the language it indexes on the ceremony, and because we, Ray languages have so little of it, uh, we're 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 at a disadvantage. But you could jumpstart it on something like Apple Cart, right, where you know what it's doing, and your phrases are the J phrases, where you know yeah, what it's... it's doing, and give it direction, and then kick it off from there, and that might be enough to to get it going. But it might be a problem that it doesn't get trained on that kind of data uh, because. The way Apple Card works, and I think all the the forks of it too, is they store all the code in a uh, tab separated file. Uh, so an algorithm might not realize that that's, that column actually contains code you should be analyzing and looking at the description that's adjacent to it. Maybe we should take all those databases from those array languages and and post them somewhere <laughs> that just a comment next to the code. Well, what if we convinced programmers to, you know, when they're programming, they would take the problems that they were thinking about and they'd they'd write them in on Apple Cart or Bacon Crate and then copy paste what they see into their code. Then it would be indexable. Um, yeah. Uh, I mean, I think you're uh, if you're saying Apple Cart's enough, you're vastly underestimating the amount of examples these LLMs need to have any idea what they're doing. Because, I mean, they're not. They're not deeply thinking about algorithms or anything. They're they're recognizing patterns. So I mean, when I say thinking per token, in human terms, this amount of thinking is very small. And it's a lot of, you know, more memorization in a sort of fuzzy way. So No, I was thinking more uh, Apple Cart, but then you add in the APL wiki and you add in the J the J wiki. I mean that that's still just like such a tiny amount compared to, you know, all the Python code these yeah. things have taken in millions if not billions of lines uh which is why it's this whole rich get richer right like the fact that python was one of the top languages in the world when like llms first came out in whatever 2022 plus or minus like that could just be it for the rest of like of like the you know until we no longer need well but they're also very sharply diminishing returns i mean the reason why you need billions of lines is that you know, billions is only a fraction better than millions, but it's the only way to get that fraction better. Yeah. Anyways, well, we'll time will tell whether, uh, you know, <laughs> array languages survive the uh, the LLM uh, revolution. Uh, anyways, back to back to game programming. <laughs> <laughs> what is a. Uh, what is next or on the horizon for you, David? Uh, you've mentioned uh, a couple of different installations that you know are are future goals of you. Is that what you're going to be focusing on right now, or are you in the midst of you know just continuing to work on you know YouTube videos and spreading the the good word of BQN and uh, array programming? Yeah, I don't really view myself as a YouTuber or anything. The, the reason I was doing it is so one to spread awareness and two to if I do things and I don't show them or don't share them that I go crazy with them. So it's really nice for me to just show stuff and then be able to look at it afterwards. Um, but yeah, um, I'm not really, I'm not really sure. I, I work very intuitively. I, I, I feel very drawn to something and then I, I study it a lot. And then <laughs> now I have this BQN knowledge, I'm obviously going to use it. Uh, and this installation is one idea I'm going to explore. Yeah, so I'm not I'm not sure. I don't really have a plan set out or anything. <laughs> okay, well, at least uh, you know, keep us informed of, you know, what your next projects are. Like I'll definitely like I mentioned a couple times be checking out uh your two different uh, Instagram and your portfolio cuz it's super cool when you hear about projects like this. I've heard of uh when I was chatting with Richard Feldman 
um, who is the individual behind the rock programming language, he was mentioning that someone had used rock to like program a physical clock, like mechanical clock that was like made out of wood. And it's just like, wow, like it's so, mm. I only ever do stuff that shows up on a monitor. Yeah. <laughs> I don't actually do stuff in the real world. So stuff like that is, it's, it's like so cool, right? Like people even that are not programmers, it's very easy to appreciate that kind of work, right? Uh, without even having to explain in too much detail, like, hey, I made this clock that's running on whatever. Like, it's, if it's physical in the real world, whether that's art or some mechanical clock, it's uh, it's super relatable for all folks. And one of the things that was promised to me in one of your videos, I think, <laughs> was that I heard, maybe I'm, I'm mistaken, but that somebody also used uh, APL, I think, for doing research on... For example, the way cancer cell grows, that's something I heard, I think. And that always stuck in the back of my mind as well, that it's very powerful to uh, to write down ideas and to think of logic. And that's one thing I hope when I get better in the language to be able to do more too, because I really like philosophy and thinking uh, or writing out my thoughts. To be able to, like I also said, with these pieces of code that explain real life phenomena, to um, think in these languages too. Like, I already have that, of course, like math and um, the logic tends towards uh, BQNified, like math more and more. Um, but I really hope to do that more of that as well, use it for my own thinking. If you were going to say something to an artist, a visual artist or an interactive uh, installation artist about how to approach programming languages, what would you say? Um, to someone that already knows how to program or just totally blank? No, no, somebody who's, who's primarily arts mm. and, and is working as an artist. And you say, this is this tool. Like, if, for instance, if it was a painter, you'd say, well, this is a paintbrush. No, they don't know how to use a paintbrush yet. Mm. But you'd have certain things you need to know about using a paintbrush. What would you say to an artist who doesn't know about programming a computer about how you would approach that? Yeah, I'm actually going to start to teach at my the school I, I studied in, so <laughs> I should know that. Um, uh, uh, I always really like uh, when something were or like when you see a visual um, thing happening, so you can get an intuition, you can explore and prototype very quickly. So if you can already get some input and show something on the screen uh, for like. Uh, a number going up if you click on a button that's already very inspiring or very triggering and um those i think like those kind of small wins building up from a very simple thing and then making adding stuff to make it more like you're envisioning or you're you're tending towards i think that's a very cool direction so for with a paintbrush you <laughs> dip it in some paint and you do a stripe on the thing and then see what you feel see what you see and then iterate on that so yeah very hands-on, I think. Yeah, and that feedback loop becomes really key, the shortness mm -hmm. of it. I know that was one of the reasons when I went into making visual media, video, um, I, I took that over film because film you need to process. So you shoot what you've got, and then two weeks later you get the film back and you see what you ended up with, whereas video, you shoot it, you look in the monitor in this case in the early days, and you'd actually be able to see what you had right then. And that was a big, that iteration actually changed the way everybody was making visual media because you had this instant feedback to the point where you could go interactive and there were interactive installations where you were actually having the person play the video in cases of, I'm trying to think of, is it June Park or June Cam? I can't remember, but one of the early video artists in the, in the 50s, that's actually what they would do. You would come up and then you'd react to the video and it would just be a, a feedback of a monitor looking at a monitor and it would create all these patterns and you could control those patterns. Um, that feedback loop is key, I think, to understanding, especially if you, 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 your aim is to try and get that proficiency to be able to control the medium, mm. you need a very quick feedback loop. Yeah, I always find it very strange how people work in, for example, 3D, uh, where you model the thing in a way different uh, environment than you rendering it. Uh, and I always work in real time, which I really love because then it's all instance and you can play directly with your steps. So I'm, I, I find it very interesting that people can work in this abstract world and then already feel out what it's going to be like when they render it. So yeah, I, I really agree with that instant feedback. I feel like... This is a fantastic way, you know, <laughs> to, to, to end. But I also want to make sure that we don't have any final questions 
from the panelists or anything that you wanted to talk about, David, that we didn't get to? No, I don't think so, actually. If not, I mean, this has been absolutely fantastic having you on. I'm so thrilled that we got to have back-to-back, first Brian and then you, because it's such a, a good juxtaposition of episodes. Um, and yeah, I hope that there are folks listening that haven't heard of your YouTube channel, even though we've mentioned it a couple times on the podcast before, that are going to go and check it out in the show notes. And yeah, I definitely look forward to, um, like I've mentioned, I think five times now, checking out your, your portfolio and uh, your Instagram. And uh, it's super cool that we've got someone out in the community. I just also, I love too now that we're asking where, it's such a shame we made it, what, 67 episodes without asking people where they were based because for all we know, we've covered like all, I don't know how many continents, uh, (laughs) what we can expect, you know, people to be recording from, but we've got, you know, folks in Australia, which is technically, is it Oceania or is it Australasia? I I never know which the actual name of the continent is. Uh, We've definitely got Europe covered now because we've got uh, the Netherlands, Faroe Islands. um, I mean, America, definitely. So North America. South America, have have we had? Uh, Was that... um... Oh, um, I'm, I've gone blank on his name, but yeah, the the uh, it was a guy you knew. Uh, he was in Toronto, but did oh, we Joao, talk to Joao, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He I was in Rio, wasn't he? Or down? He was in Brazil. Yeah, I mean, he's from Brazil, but I can't remember. I thought we talked to him in Brazil, and we had Tali from Africa. Yes, yes, yeah. So. Uh... Yeah, we've, we've, yeah, we got to start like a little map. We're going to have to retrospectively go back and figure out where all our guests have been because it's very cool that, you know, from uh, week to week, we've got one person in the Faroe Islands, one person in the Netherlands. And uh, I and don't I'm, think we've done Asia yet. All right. Well, put it on the list. Yeah. <laughs> There's lots of people live there who'd like to be on the show. <laughs> our next guest is <laughs> specifically because they happen to live in beijing and <laughs> and if you do want to get in touch with us uh contact at arraycast.com and uh, you can reach us there and the show notes and with that usually i throw back to connor but i see david's got his hand up so david <laughs> what would you like to say yeah, I just wanted to say quickly, like, if you're on the brink of wanting to learn one of these languages, go do it. Like, it's really worth it. It's such a, an interesting world, and it really opens your mind to more ideas. I think it, it really is worth it. So, and just go through it. it, it it's going to be hard, but you'll go through it. You'll learn it. We'll have to put this. I, I always talk about this montage of clips because these clips to our listener you know, don't really push people over the edge. Because if they're listening to this podcast, they probably already have dipped their toe. But if we put this on YouTube, I think it was when we had Rob Pike on as well. He had a bunch of uh, amazing uh, quotes. The same with Jeremy Howard. Anyways, we could go back through the whole backlog and there would be a quote from everyone. We'll make that, that one will go in the montage uh, and we'll put it on, I don't know, my YouTube channel or somewhere on YouTube. So the folks that haven't dipped their toes in the array language world uh, finally can. Uh, anyways, with that, we will say happy array programming. Happy, happy array, array programming. programming.